All right, so come on in. Looks like we got plenty of notes in the back still, um, so if you don't have them, feel free to get up and get them. Last week, we started working our way through what's called either the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. Um, This is the part where the disciples have finished eating dinner, the Passover supper. Judas has left, and Jesus begins to prepare the remaining 11 disciples for the daunting prospect that he will not be around anymore. And he begins that preparation with the command that they are to love one another as he has loved them. And then he also tries to encourage the disciples by explaining that he is going to the Father, so he will be away from them. But as a consequence, he will unlock access to heaven for his followers, and he promises to come back and return for his followers. He claims that having a relationship with him is the only way for disciples or any other human to get to heaven, so he is the way to heaven, and that having a relationship with him is all the followers need to know to get there. And then let's pick up in verse 11, because that's going to set up what we're going to study today. So he says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. So the first big promise he makes is that because he's going away, he will be able to empower his followers to carry on his ministry and do even greater things than Jesus did during his ministry. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So he also promises to bring his followers' requests to the Father and that he will try to do anything that his followers request, conditioned on it being consistent with his authority and God the Father's will. So a huge promise to do what his followers want and to empower them. And then in 15, he makes this huge demand. If you love me, you will obey what I command. So there's an association there between love and obedience. And as we work our way through um, the passage, we're going to see Jesus didn't just misspeak this time. This is something he really means that you can uh, view obedience to his commands as a litmus test of whether you love him. And if you're an American, you probably don't like that unless you've been exposed to Christianity so long that you've sort of gotten used to love and obedience to commands getting tied together. And I think one reason um, American culture 
dislikes that idea is that the experience we have in the world, I think with everyone else other than Jesus, is that commands are often given for selfish reasons, to advance the interests of the one giving the command without necessarily thinking of the burdens the command poses on the other party who's subject to the command. And, you know, that's kind of what our nation was founded in, as we were these colonies and we felt like Great Britain and the king was taking advantage of us and that that wasn't right and we had these inalienable rights that every human being should have that were being abused. And so we were kind of a society founded in this idea that we don't like commands, we distrust them, we set up our government to try and prevent anyone from having absolute power. And I think one of the challenges Christianity asks us to recognize is that Jesus is different from everything we've experienced in this world, and that if you look at the Trinity and his example, it shows that when he issues commands... There are good reasons for them. Um, They promote holiness, and they are to our advantage. And one of the ways he demonstrates that is by the things he's just said he's going to do for his follower. He's a servant leader, so he's just washed their feet. He's just explained he's about to die for them. And so if he's willing to do those things for you, if he loves you that much, then we are to trust that when he asks us to do something, he's not abusing his power. It's a command that makes sense, even if we can't see how it makes sense right away. And then, um, right after that, he makes more promises to us that help us understand why that request makes sense. He says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the word that the NIV translates as counselor is, in Greek, paraclete. It's translated different ways in English because there really isn't one word that's a wonderful translation of it. So your Bible may have something like um, helper, Advocate. Um, they, the commentators say that the secular meaning of the Greek word was someone who had come alongside someone else who had a problem and helps them with that problem. And so it could even be someone who, if you had a problem in Greek society that landed you in court, came alongside you and helped you in that problem. So another word that's used is intercessor. So it's someone who intercedes in someone else's problem to help them with it. So we often think of counselors as someone who sits in an office and asks you, well, how does that make you feel, right? But this is a little bit different. This is the kind of counselor that actually comes alongside you and says, how can we solve this problem and helps you solve that problem in a practical way. And so advocate's not a bad translation. Helper's not a bad translation. 
And if you think about what Jesus has been doing for the disciples, he's certainly been functioning in this way. He's come alongside them. He's guiding them spiritually. He helps them by dying for them. And he says this, I'm going to no longer be alongside of you, but I'm going to send someone who will be, who will take over the role of paraclete. This doesn't mean that Jesus ceases to be an advocate for the disciples. He's already explained some of the ways once he gets to heaven. He continues to act on the disciples' behalf, but he provides the Holy Spirit to fill the gap of being the person who's actually present with the disciples. And some notable things about this presence are that it's with you forever— So this is something that once the disciples have, they never lose. And you flip over to Ephesians. Chapter 1. So... In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul kind of works his way through the Trinity, talking about uh, the ways that different members of the Trinity are involved in salvation. And at around verse 13, he transitions to the Holy Spirit and says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So very consistent with what Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit comes alongside, and one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to be the presence that ensures the completion of your salvation. Paul calls it a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, almost like a spiritual security deposit that assures that your redemption will be completed. So it's a way that's with you forever. Jesus describes it as the spirit of truth. And what that implies is that just as Jesus has shown God the Father's character to the disciples, and so as a revealer of truth, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to reveal truth to the disciples. Then another thing about the Holy Spirit is that Jesus says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So with you and in you implies a very close relationship. So this Holy Spirit will have a very close relationship with the disciples. We describe that often with the word indwelling. It will literally be a spiritual presence that's with you all the time. But because it's spiritual, it's not something visible to the world. So one of the tricky things about this is we believe it's real, but it's not something you can see. You don't get this big S marked on your forehead. We think when Pentecost happens, we have visible signs that are assigned to the apostles 
that, hey, this has really happened. But those visible signs cease pretty quickly if you read Acts. And throughout the vast majority of church history, there's nothing visible that happens when you first become a genuine believer. Now, we do believe the world should be able to see the effects of the Holy Spirit's presence. So we often talk about the fruit of the Spirit and how that should display itself in changes in your lives, including things like gentleness, peace, love, joy. And earlier in this chapter, Jesus has talked about one sign is the love believers should have for each other should actually be something that's visible to outsiders. But as a general rule, this is not something the world experiences. It's not something the world can see. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that so far? All right, so let's keep going. So Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So, what did orphan mean in the first century? In the first century, an orphan was someone that had lost both their parents, and so it's a child lost in the world with no one to protect it. And so Jesus says, yes, I'm going away, but you won't be orphans. He says, I will come to you. And so one of the big questions is, in what sense will Jesus come to the disciples? What does he mean here? I think the next verses are helpful in understanding that. He says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So the options for what Jesus means when he says, I will come to you, include his post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, his presence through the Holy Spirit, which he's kind of just been talking about, his return at the end times, which he talked about earlier in the chapter when he said, I will come back for you, or a combination of all of the above. And it's definitely a tricky problem, so you can make arguments for all of them or a combination of them. I think the most popular one and the one that was most persuasive to me is that the primary reference is actually to the post-resurrection appearances here. And one reason for that is the contrast in verse 19 where he says, before long, so pretty soon, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And so, you will see me implies that the appearances he has in mind are something that's visible to the disciples. And if you think about the post-resurrection appearances, that's true of the post-resurrection appearances. The disciples actually see Jesus. But he says, the world will not see me anymore. Well, that also fits the post-resurrection appearances. If you read those episodes, they're with disciples. They aren't large public events. There's no record of large crowds of unbelievers seeing Jesus in any of the post-resurrection appearances. In contrast, if Jesus were talking about the second coming, 
Well, that's an event that everyone sees. That's a you-can't-miss-it event, whether you're a believer or not. So the fact that he says the world will not see me seems to point away from the second coming being in view here. Similarly, the fact that this is visible to the disciples, and he says, you will see me, points away from it just being his presence through the Holy Spirit. And if you think about uh, what happens at those post-resurrection appearances, for example, look at John 20. Those post-resurrection appearances certainly seem to be critical in the disciples finally coming to grasp with the Trinitarian implications of everything Jesus has been seeing. When, for example, he appears and Thomas sees him, Jesus says, at verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And so there seems to be a real advance in the post-resurrection appearances in the disciples' understanding, which fits what Jesus is saying back in chapter 14. So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I am going to come back. But I also think, because the context of this is the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a big part of how Jesus does not leave the disciples unprotected. And certainly what he's talking about here is intermixed in with his discussion of the Holy Spirit. And that's a big part of why the disciples aren't just abandoned in the world, is that they have the Holy Spirit. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? All right, so let's keep going and finish this paragraph. Then he returns to the link between obedience and love and makes it perhaps even more unpalatable to us. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, you could translate that, whoever knows my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So he flips the order And basically says, if you want to figure out who loves me, just look at whoever's obeying my commands. Right? Well, that's really un-American. Right? If you watch pretty much any Hollywood production and you want to figure out who is the least loving person in the movie, figure out which character cares the most about commands. Right? And before we jump on Hollywood too much, you can even make an argument that's how the Gospels work, right? Who's the one running around the Gospels that seems most concerned about commands? It's the Pharisees. Who's the one that comes across as the most unloving people in the Gospels? The Pharisees. So uh, how do we be people who care about commands without becoming the villains, without becoming the least loving people. I think one way is to pay attention to what Jesus actually commands. So we think about what Jesus has commanded so far. 
He's focused on loving him and loving other people. It's a positive command to love. He hasn't told them, don't use rhythm instruments, don't dance, don't use playing cards. He hasn't told them to run around telling other people, don't do those things. I don't, and I don't, where I'm going with this is I don't think Jesus means sin is okay. I want you to go around sinning and not care about sinning. I think if you focus on the commands he has given you, you will, as Randy was pointing out in the sermon, realize you're not okay. You fall woefully short of those commands. But I think your focus will be on yourself and where you fall short, which should lead to humility and humbleness rather than an attitude of arrogance that makes you unlikable to everyone around you. And so if you focus on what Jesus actually says, you should be a person who is full of love and concerned with loving other people, not the kind of empty, legalist, arrogant jerk that no one likes. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? All right. So then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, John helpfully tells us. So who is this Judas? We think, based on comparison with lists and other Gospels, he could be the disciple referred to in Luke as the son of James and in Matthew as Thaddeus. It's not unusual for people in that culture to have more than one name. We think that's who this disciple is. So this Judas says, But Lord, why or how is it that you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And this is actually a logical question from the disciples' perspective because everything they've read about the Messiah in the Old Testament and the way it's traditionally been interpreted is that when the Messiah's true nature gets revealed to his followers, everyone realizes it. So the world recognizes it. They basically are picturing something like the second coming where both his enemies and his followers recognize the Messiah's here at the same time. It's a you-can't-miss-it moment. So they wonder, how is it that they're going to know the Messiah has appeared, but the rest of the world isn't? And Jesus basically rehearses what he said before. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Okay? So the answer is that there's going to be this personal relationship with the disciples. So you will get to know Jesus' true character and nature, and I think part of the answer is through this spiritual relationship with the Holy Spirit. But what's surprising to the disciples and unexpected to them is that it's going to be primarily a personal, spiritual relationship 
that's invisible to the rest of the world. So that's how you're going to be able to have this close relationship with God, yet the rest of the world is going to go on their merry way, pretending that the Messiah has not been here, ignoring God to the best of their ability. All right? So he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So Jesus is not going to force the rest of the world to obey his teaching at this point in time. And so that's how it is that the Messiah is going to have been here and to have a real relationship with his followers, yet the rest of the world is not going to be paying attention to it. And if you focus on, we will come to him and make our home with him, you can interpret that as dwell with him. And so what Jesus is revealing here is actually a huge advance in God's salvific program. So flip back with me to Leviticus. Twenty-six. So when when Moses is getting revelation from God about what's the purpose of this covenant at Sinai and taking the Israelites to the promised land, he says, I will put my dwelling place among you looking at verse 11, and not abhor you. So if you remember all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what are we told about the Garden of Eden? That in the cool of the evening, God actually manifested his presence in the garden, and Adam and Eve could walk and talk and essentially live with God, just like he was their friend, coming over, for dinner, to talk about the events of the day. And that was the hope of the promised land, that it would be a dwelling place where God could live with the people of Israel. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptian I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. But what keeps happening? The Israelites can't hold up the end of their bargain, the end of the bargain that they're supposed to do. They keep disobeying God, and so they can't experience the full covenant benefit of being able to live in the promised land with God. So what happens is they get ejected from the promised land, but we're told in Jeremiah, so flip over to Jeremiah 31, that someday God is going to fix that. So Jeremiah 31, 33 after explaining that the Israelites haven't been able to live up to their obligations on the covenant, that's why Jeremiah predicts the Babylonians are going to kick you out of the land. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So one of the key aspects of the new covenant that makes it better is that God will somehow put his expectations inside people so that you don't just have to read it on tablets of stone. You will know him through an internal relationship. And in the other Gospels, Jesus expressly says at Passover, I'm instituting the new covenant now. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is a big advance in how that happens. And the purpose of it is to enable his followers to do what Israel as a group could never do under the first covenant, which was fulfill the obligations and therefore be able to live with God. And Jesus in John 14 says that thing begins with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is God actually living with you. And so as you make your way through life, you can, in your mind, picture God walking alongside you as your paraclete to get through life. And that's a huge advance over the first covenant towards where we're ultimately headed. So flip over to Revelation. Twenty-one. So in John's vision of the very end of time, he sees a city coming out of heaven and says at 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live them, with them. They will be his people God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so where we're headed is you being in a condition where you are fit to live with God so closely he can reach out and wipe tears from your eyes. And you can live in perfect harmony with other people in a perfect environment where there's no death or mourning. But in order to be able to do that, you've got to experience this internal process that starts with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, continues through sanctification, and eventually you get to glorification where you're able to reflect the character of Christ perfectly. Okay? But in a sense, God is already making his home with you. And someday that process will be complete in a perfect home designed by God. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? Yes? Yeah. That's how I understand the word eternal to mean that the close relationship with the Holy Spirit continues forever, including into eternity. Yes. Yep. Jesus was indwelled by the Holy Spirit when he was baptized by 
I wouldn't call that indwelling. So that to me looks more like anointing or filling. And so the Holy Spirit does a lot of different things. One of the things we see even in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit can anoint or come on someone to enable them to perform some task. And so one example of that would be prophets. Another example would be kings. So, for example, Saul is actually empowered by the Holy Spirit, receives an anointing of the Holy Spirit when he first becomes king, and he loses it, right? And David receives something similar. And so one of the things he prays when he really messes up is, please don't take that away from me. And so one difference between that kind of anointing for a particular task is it can be temporary. The indwelling is something that is forever. I don't see in the Gospels evidence that Jesus experienced what I would call indwelling. It looks like he's anointed by the Holy Spirit to me the same way David was. Yes. So I believe it's when you become a genuine believer, the term usually is conversion at that moment. I think it occurs then. Does that prompt more questions or is that... Well, so flip over to Acts. Well, actually, go to Romans. I think it's Romans 6 I'm looking for. So, Randy, the passage I was looking for is the one that talks about how if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, thanks. Yeah, you're right. So, chat, look at 8 and 9. Thanks. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. I've, I understand that to be a reference to indwelling. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So if you back up to the phrase, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. I take that to mean everybody who's a believer has an indwelling, experiences the indwelling. 
So that means as soon as you become a believer, you must have that. There's some weird stuff in Acts at the beginning where it seems like there may be groups that had become believers, but they don't experience the indwelling until an apostle shows up and lays hands on them. But that seems more like an unusual circumstance to make it clear to the church that this group deserved to be part of the church than something that happens regularly throughout church history. So there are some sects that have understood you to need a like gift of the Holy Spirit after you believed. And like it's almost like there become levels of Christianity or levels of believers. And I'm not comfortable with that kind of theology. So I think indwelling is something every Christian experiences as soon as they are a genuine believer at the moment of conversion. And that would be the kind of passage, I think, that indicates it's universal for Christians. Good question. And so, yes, if you know people who are, grew up in Pentecostal churches, they may not see it that way. Any other questions? All right, let's go back to John then. So Jesus then repeats um, that these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So it's a recurring theme in John that what Jesus is saying is what God the Father says. And, you know, that's really important to the disciples because they're Israelites. And so what he's telling them is, hey, if you want to continue to have a relationship with the God of the Old Testament— You have to believe these claims because this is what the God of the Old Testament wants. This is what he's doing through me. Then he returns to the idea of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor or advocate or helper, whatever your translation has, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, In other words, whom the Father will send to carry out my wishes will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. So all throughout John, we've been seeing little references to events that happen, and John will say things like, I didn't understand this at the time, or we didn't understand this when it happened, but after Jesus died, we did. Well, the Holy Spirit is part of what did that. The Holy Spirit helped the disciples put together all the jigsaw puzzle um, that they didn't see while Jesus was still alive. So that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to teach disciples and help them understand the message of the gospel. Then Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So another encouraging blessing. Um, The word for peace 
was a common greeting and way of saying farewell in Jewish culture. It still is today. The word shalom can be used as a greeting or a way to say goodbye. What does Jesus mean when he contrasts the peace he gives with the way the world means? And this leads into another point Randy was making. I thought Calvin, in his commentary on John, was actually really helpful on this point. The point he makes is that when people in the world wish peace to you, they may not even mean it sincerely. They may just mean it the same way we say, how are you, as we walk past a coworker in the hall, and we don't really mean we want to sit down and have a discussion about how you are. We mean I'm trying to be polite and not just ignore you as I walk past you as fast as I can, right? And so sometimes when people say peace, they aren't really trying to give you peace. Then Calvin points out, and even if they were, could they really bestow peace on you? And the answer is probably not. Even if they want to give you peace, the average person can't give you peace. But unlike the world, Jesus says he can give you peace. So what peace is it that Jesus leaves as he goes off to heaven and because he goes to heaven? And he'll make clear later in this farewell discourse, he doesn't mean he leaves a trouble-free life. So it's not peace in the sense that you'll never be disappointed by what happens in life. But what he does leave behind is peace with God. And Paul and the other New Testament writers talk at great length about that blessing. What he leaves behind is the assurance that you have no need to fear God, as Randy talked about in this sermon. You can look forward to when Christ returns. Because for you, that won't be a moment of judgment. It'll be a moment of grace and mercy. And you can look forward to the day when you live in perfect harmony with other believers and with God. You have peace with God. And so that peace, hopefully, can give us some stability, some way to avoid being devastated by the storms of life. And I couldn't help thinking of the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I'd heard part of the story before, but I'd never heard the full story of that. First off, how many knew that the author of that hymn was a lawyer? Few of you did. I did not score one for the lawyers. We're not all bad. I also didn't know this. Um, He lived in Chicago. Anyone know he lived in Chicago? A few people did. So he was a successful lawyer in Chicago. And as a prudent financial guy, he invested in property, lots of property in Chicago. What happened in Chicago in the late 1800s? A fire. So a lot of his buildings burned. And so he was actually attending to some of the horrible issue, business issues that arose because of the fire. And he and his wife and their four daughters wanted to do ministry in Great Britain. And so he said, I've got to take care of all these problems because of the fire. You go ahead 
And so they get on the boat, his wife and the four daughters. The boat sinks. She sends a telegram, saved alone, because they lose all their daughters, and only his wife survives. And so it's while he's in the boat going over to Great Britain that he writes, It is well with my soul, as he thinks about all the losses he's experienced. And nevertheless, he knows and can take comfort in the fact that it is well with his soul because he has peace with God. That doesn't make it okay that he lost his daughters. It doesn't make that um, a happy event. We still experience sadness, but hopefully we can persevere through that sadness knowing that God is with us, he loves us, and we have peace with him. Hopefully that becomes sort of a rallying point. You know, they talk about rally around the flag. Hopefully that's a flag we can plant and rally around when we face all kinds of things uh, we don't like. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? All right, let's do a little bit more, and then we'll break. So then, after promising peace, he said, You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So a couple things about that. Um, First, for the Father is greater than I has been troubling to a lot of people throughout history, It was phrases like that that led to big debates when the doctrine of the Trinity was being hammered out because there was a group led by this guy named Arius that said, see, when you read that, that means Jesus is somehow a lesser being than God the Father, so let's not adopt the Trinity. Trinity's wrong, okay? But the view that won the day, and that I think is clearly correct, and that we adhere to in the E-free denomination, is that if you look at all the references throughout John and the rest of the New Testament that say things like, I and the Father are one, or before Abraham was, I am, if you put all those together, it's clear that there is an equality of essence that the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God the Father share And so when Jesus says, greater than I, he's not saying, I am not divine. What he's talking about is the role that he plays in the Trinity, the function, and that he submits himself. And throughout the gospel, over and over, you'll see Jesus say things like, I was sent by the Father. I do exactly what the Father wants. And so the picture that emerges is that in this one being, there are separate persons that have different roles. Jesus' role is to submit and carry out the Father's will. So it's a functional subordination, would be the fancy theological term for it. And later in the passage, he's even going to say, what I'm about to do in dying on the cross is an example of that, of how I submit myself to the Father. So the Father's greater just in the sense that he's the one that seems to give commands to Jesus functionally in the Trinity. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that? I'm guessing all of you agree with that. 
So let's then back up to this idea of you would be glad that I am going to the Father. And so Jesus has said a lot of things that are meant to be comforting to the disciples. I think he understands him going away as a stressful event to the disciples, and he appreciates that. But he also calls on the disciples to look at this situation from his perspective and recognize and be happy for him because this, rec- this represents a great turn of events for Jesus because it represents the fact that Jesus has accomplished his mission, which includes a lot of pain and suffering. He's going to be done with that pain and suffering, go back to heaven, and experience the glory that he had before he came to earth. So it's a good turn of events for him. And if you think about this, um, this is a great way to test the admonition we get from Paul and Philippians to think of others as more important than ourselves. Use a really concrete, small example of this. I work at the courthouse, which is state government, routinely. Great employees at the courthouse leave because other employers are willing to pay them more than state government can pay. And when that happens, it's painful for us. You, leave, you lose a great coworker, you have to go out, replace that coworker. That's a painful process. But if you care about that coworker, you have to be at least a little happy for them that the fact that they're a good employee has been recognized by someone who's willing to pay them more. And if you see them as more important than you, then you really should be able to be happy for them. Doesn't mean you don't recognize that, yes, it's painful for you that you're losing them. But when someone around you experiences something good, if we are not completely self-centered, we ought to be able to celebrate with them even as we feel a sense of loss for ourselves. That's part of being an outwardly other-centered person, which is what we need to be if we're to love each other in a way that's different from the rest of the world. So I think there's a real general principle contained within this application that the disciples need to not just think about how Jesus leaving is bad for them, but also be willing to look at the situation and see how it's good for Jesus. All right, questions, comments, concerns about that. All right, let's finish this up real quick. So I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. So he said something like that earlier when he was talking about Judas. His being able to predict everything that's going to happen is a sign that what he says is true. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, which is how the NIV translates it. Your translation may have something like, he has no power over me. Supposedly what it, the most literal translation would be, he has nothing on me. And the point is, Satan has no ability to make Jesus do anything. He has no power over him. He has no claim on him. But 
Jesus is going to die anyway, and the purpose Jesus lists here is the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So now Jesus has given at least three different purposes for dying on the cross. One, back in John 3, was to provide the means of forgiveness so that people can have a relationship with God. A second one is this one, so that um, the world can learn exactly what, that he does exactly what the Father commands. And then earlier he said also to drive Satan out of the world. So when Jesus dies on the cross, there are multiple purposes, driving Satan out, saving, providing a means of salvation for people, and then demonstrating submission to God the Father. And then last, he says, come now, let us leave. There's a big debate whether the disciples actually leave at that point. The reason for that debate is if you flip over to 18.1, says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. So some people argue 18.1 is when they actually leave the upper room. In which case, when he says at the end of 14, come now, let us leave, it's that moment at the dinner party when the first person says, I think I should be going, and everyone else just sits there and continues talking, and then you all actually leave a half hour later, which is plausible, that's possible, so that's been a popular view. The second um, way to interpret this and what's actually the most popular traditional view is that they leave the upper room at 14. And so in 18.1, when it says they left with the disciples, it means they left the city at that that point. So the second view is they continue conversing as they walk from the upper room to the edge of the city. And that's actually the most popular traditional view. I have to share one other thing Calvin said, which is he basically interpreted this to mean when Jesus says, come now, let us leave, he's basically saying, let's go. It's an organization. And I just love the image of Jesus standing up, pushing Peter in the chest and going, let's go, and then not actually going anywhere. Because I've seen that in every high school sporting event for the past three years. But I I think this is one instance where Calvin was out to lunch. No one else seems to think uh, the let's go theory is right. I tend to think they left and they're walking as they're talking when we start going next week. But the other way works just fine too, that they don't actually leave at this point and that they're still sitting in the upper room. All right, that's the end. See you next week.